This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 of Up the River by Oliver Optic The Strange Movement of the Islander Cobbington had engaged the additional waiter. His name was Real Bendick. As he spelled it out to me, and he seemed to be an intelligent and docile man, he was to wait on the table in the fore cabin while Tom Sands was to continue in the after cabin, where he had always been assisted by the steward, and on great occasions by Washington Gopher, the accomplished cook who had come all the way from Detroit. With these exceptions, our crew remained the same as before. Since our return from up the St. John's, everything about the Sylvania had been put in perfect order for sea. Moses Brickland, the engineer, had overhauled the machinery and the boiler, and we had a full supply of coal in the bunkers. I went all over the vessel and assured myself that everything was in order. I suppose there's no doubt about our leaving in the morning, is there, Captain Malick? asked Bob Washburn, the mate as we seated ourselves in the captain's cabin, after we had both been all over the deck and the cabins. Of course, I don't know anything more about that than you do, but I think there cannot be much doubt of it, I replied. We shall have no passengers but my father, the Tiffany's, and my cousin. Does Owen Garningham go with us, Alec? asked Washburn with astonishment. He told me this afternoon he had no invitation to go in the Islander, and my father said he would have none, I replied. Then your father thinks there's been too much spooning on board, added Washburn, laughing. Probably Colonel Shepard thinks so, too, and that may be the reason why he decided to go in the Islander instead of in the Sylvania. I should think it would be better to separate Owen and Miss Edith until each shall have a chance to make up his mind. Owen seems to be very much attached to Miss Edith, and their being together all the time may result in something very serious. He is a young fellow of twenty, and I doubt if he knows his own mind. He is fascinated by a pretty face. There is no doubt of that, and the face is as pretty as one as I ever saw, added Washburn with emphasis. My father says Owen's mother is very rich and that she is more afraid he will fall into some entangling alliance of this sort. Then she is of becoming a drunkard or becoming a bad man, I continued, recalling some of the conversations my father had had with me. They say Colonel Shepard is rich enough to satisfy even an English nabob, suggested the mate. I suppose Owen's mother expects him to marry a duchess, I replied. I saw her when I was in England. But she had no love for me, and I have no doubt she wished I had never turned up. I should say that Edith Shepard was good enough for any fellow, even if he were an earl or a duke, said Washburn, shrugging at his shoulders. Luckily, it is none of our affair, though my sympathies are all with Owen, I added. I wonder if Nick Boomsby came on board this afternoon, I continued, willing to change the subject. I called Cobbington into our room and was informed that Nick had been on board and had been treated with distinguished consideration. Did he say anything about going with us, Cobbington? I asked. He only said he should like to go with us, but you would not allow him to do so, and he had given up all thought about it, replied the new steward. 
Besides, he said he was the important witness in a law case that would come up tomorrow morning. I don't believe he would stay for the law case if I would give him a berth on board, I added. I related the particulars of the robbery of the messenger, and Cobbington commented on them at some length. I found that he knew the messenger and had not a very high respect for him. He had his doubts whether there was any $4,000 in the transaction. It looked more to him as though the messenger had arranged the affair so that he could appropriate the money to his own use. Cobbington had worked with Buckner, who was a poor man and had come to Florida like himself to save his life. Why did Nick jump over the counter and chase Buckner then? Nick says he saw Buckner take the package from the counter and run out at the front door, I added. I don't know anything about the matter except that I would trust Buckner farther than I would Peveril, persisted the steward. A bank messenger that means to be honest don't go into a bar room and put $4,000 down on the counter. Not every day in the week, at least. I don't believe Buckner took the package, and if he had, it would have been found on him when the policeman caught him. We could not get ahead any further than those on shore had in solving the mysterious disappearance of the treasure. At an early hour, I turned in, and Washburn soon followed me. After dark, I cautioned the anchor watch not to let any person come on board. I was afraid that Nick Boomsby would try to become a stowaway on board of the steamer and thus give his father an additional grudge against me. But I soon went to sleep and forgot all about Nick. I was up at five in the morning. Before I washed my face and made my toilet, I went on deck to take a look at the weather, as I generally did at sea or when we were on the point of sailing. It was cloudy and thick, but I thought it probable that it would clear off as the day advanced. The smoke was pouring out of the smokestack of the Islander, as well as of the Sylvania. If the weather was not bad enough to make me think of delaying our departure, it was still not so pleasant as I desired for a start. I dressed myself and looked the vessel over again. Our party would breakfast before they came on board, and we had nothing to do yet but look after ourselves. At six o'clock we took our morning meal. As soon as it was cleared away, I ordered the anchor up, and we ran into the market wharf to take on board our passengers. Before we reached the wharf, I saw a boat board at the Islander, but she was too far off for me to determine who was in the craft. It was still only half past six, and I did not expect our passengers for half an hour or more. I went on shore to walk through the market. It seemed very odd to me to find all sorts of green things, such as green peas, cucumbers, spinach, new turnips, carrots, and most other vegetables, which I had not been in the habit of seeing until July or August. But we had been eating such things, including strawberries, for a month, and many of them all winter in the West Indies. The islander is under away, said Washburn, as I sauntered along the wharf. Probably she is going to run in for her passengers, as we have done, I replied. She don't seem to be heading for the wharf, but down the river, added the mate. I went on board and then to the hurricane deck where I could obtain a good view of her. I was confident that her passengers had not gone on board of her, for we had seen nothing but a boat with two persons in it going alongside the islander. 
The party consisted of four persons, and two of them were ladies. They could not have gone on board of her without our seeing them. It don't look as though she was running into a wharf, said Washburn, joining me on the hurricane deck. Very likely she is taking a little run down the river so that her new captain can see how she works, I added, without a suspicion that anything was wrong about our twin sister. It isn't seven yet, and she has taken a little turn before she goes up to the wharf. Of course it is all right, replied Washburn. Her captain is as salt as a barrel of brine and knows all about steamers. We waited fifteen minutes longer till I heard a clock strike seven, but the islander continued on her course down the river. I knew she had been ordered to be ready to sail at seven, and I did not suppose Captain Blastblow would willingly fail to be on time. While I was watching the movements of our consort, the baggage of our party arrived at the end of the wharf, and a few minutes later a carriage came bringing our passengers. I had no more time to study the affairs of the islander. My father, Mr. Tiffany, and Miss Margie were in the carriage, and I was permitted to help the young lady out and escort her to the deck. I was a little afraid of my father calling me a spoon, and I was careful not to overdo myself in politeness. How long before you sail, Captain Alec? asked my fair companion. Immediately, I replied. The islander has already gone, but I think she must return. May I go into the pilot house, Captain? Certainly. I shall be delighted to have you there. How much I shall miss Edith, exclaimed Miss Margie, as I gave her the best seat in the pilot house. I think it is a great pity that we could not all go together in the same steamer. I should have been very glad to have the shepherds on board, I replied. I suppose Colonel Shepard prefers to sail in his own yacht, as I think I should if I were in his place. But we shall be within hell of each other most of the time, and you can visit Miss Edith about every day after we get into the Mississippi River. I am told the Mississippi is a very large river, mused Miss Margie. Can you see across it, Captain Alec? No doubt of it, I answered, laughing. It is not more than a mile wide as a rule. You must be thinking of the Amazon, which is a hundred and fifty miles wide near its mouth. Vessels must get out of sight of land in crossing it near the ocean. We are all aboard, Alec, except Owen, said my father, coming into the pilot house. He should not keep us waiting. Perhaps he has decided to go into the other steamer, I suggested. But I had hardly spoken the words before Owen came on board. He did not seem to be in despair at his separation from his bright particular star, and was in excellent humor when he joined us in the pilot house. Where are the rest of your party, Owen? Merciful hot and splosh! Haven't you found out yet they are going on the islander? demanded Owen. I haven't seen them go on board of her yet, I added. They took a carriage to the wharf near the boathouse, and I took one to come here, replied Owen. They must be on board of her by this time. I think not. The islander has gone down the river, I answered, as I ordered the fast to be cast off. I backed the Sylvania on the stern line to clear her from the wharf, and then rang to go ahead. Our voyage around Florida had actually begun. 
and I was duly exhilarated by the fact. The islander had gone around the bend of the river, and I could see only her masts and rigging. The wind was blowing fresh from the southwest, and I was not a little astonished to see that her crew were shaking out the fore topsail. This did not indicate that her captain intended to return to the wharf for his passengers. Colonel Shepard and his family must have gone on board of her at least a quarter of an hour before seven, Owen, I said, unable to account for the movements of the islander in any other way. But they did not leave the colonel's house till five minutes of seven. At the same time I started to come here, replied Owen. What has happened? What's the matter? I don't know that anything is the matter, I replied. The islander got under way about half past six, and I supposed she was going to take a turn on the river before she went to the wharf. Instead of that, she has been moving steadily down the river since she got up her anchor, and there she is, three or four miles on her way to the ocean. Sylvania ahoy! shouted someone on the shore. On the pier near the clubhouse were the shepherd party and it was the colonel who had hailed us. They seemed to be quite as much astonished as we were. I ran the steamer up to the wharf. End of chapter